0: brush with is sponsored by bloomberg connects the app for arts and culture created by bloomberg philanthropies bloomberg connects lets you access museums galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to the first episode of A Brush With in 2022. This is the podcast where I talk to artists about their influences from art to literature, music and film, and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. In this episode, it's a brush with Dianita Singh, an artist who has a unique approach to photography, resisting the idea of a single, decisive image and instead presenting her richly diverse photographic images in the context of constructed environments, bespoke archival structures and artist books. Dianita was born in 1961 in New Delhi, India, and initially studied visual communication at the National Institute for Design in Ahmedabad in Western India. During her studies there, she began her first significant work, a series of photographs of the hugely influential Indian tabla musician Zakir Hussain. She then went on to study photojournalism at the International Centre of Photography in New York and began her career working on assignments for newspapers and journals across the world. But she soon moved away from documentary with the project that became one of her longest lasting and best known in which she worked with Mona Ahmed, a eunuch or hijra who lived as a woman in Delhi. Dianita charted Mona's life in intimate detail, from the time spent with her adopted daughter to the home she'd created in one of New Delhi's graveyards. The project was presented in the form of an artist book, Myself, Mona Ahmed, produced by the visionary publisher Walter Keller of Scallow Books. More than most artist books are at the heart of Dianita's work. To me, she said, the exhibition is the catalogue of the works in the book. Since working with Keller, she's forged a relationship with another great publisher, Gerhard Steidel, who's produced numerous books of the highest quality with her. In privacy, Dianita reacted to the stereotypes of poverty and exoticism in India in news photography by photographing well-to-do families in their fine homes. Chairs from 2005 is a series of empty seats in the collection of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, where Dianita had a residency. In Go Away Closer from 2007, Dianita reacted to personal loss with what she called a novel without words, through photographs of everything from a young woman face down on a bed to rainwashed paving stones, empty interiors, including an auditorium, and a death mask in a bell jar. Dianita's images are notable for their distinctive framing, their rich tonality, and their breadth of mood, and this is partly achieved through a mastery of the richness and depth of black and white photography. But even in her rare projects using colour, like the Blue Book of 2009 and Dream Villa from 2010, she has a singular and painterly photographic voice. In the last decade, has increasingly explored presenting her photographs in three dimensions to a series of mobile museums containing images across her career and large handmade wooden structures which allow the photographs to be displayed in evolving ways, never fixed in a time period or in a discrete body of work, but instead able to be re-edited and sequenced and presented afresh. Among them is the Museum of Chance from 2013, which is in the collection of the Museum of Modern Art in New York, or MoMA, in which the wooden objects created to hold the images can themselves take multiple forms, from pillars to folded-out screens. The Museum of Chance is one of nine museums, alongside others including the Museum of Vitrines or the Museum of Little Ladies, within a bigger structure, the Museum Bhavan, which is the most elaborate form of what Dianita calls her photo architecture. It was the subject of a global touring exhibition several years ago. The nine museums each allow some photographs to be displayed within the wooden form or on nearby walls, while others are held in a so-called reserve collection kept within the structure. Some of the museums have furniture within them to prompt conversation. Like Dianita's books, it's an extraordinarily democratic way for an artist to present their practice, allowing the viewers, as well as the curators, to select a path through Dianita's work. And she continues to push the presentation of her photography in new directions, recently with a series of themed boxes of 30 images with a bespoke structure, which can be endlessly reimagined or reconnected. Dianita is one of the most pioneering photographers of recent decades, and her relationship with the medium goes right back to her childhood in Delhi. And it's with this that I began our conversation. She said that as a little girl, she was over photographed. What did she mean by that? My mother was
1: an obsessive album maker. So everything had to be photographed, not just to make a photograph, but for it to be put into an album for that child or that event. And since I was the first born, I was the most photographed. And that was perhaps the only trauma of my childhood, waiting for her to measure the distance. She used a manual focus camera, so she had to make the steps towards me and then go back and then take the picture.
0: So there was this whole process. I mean, you, you, you learned about photography not just as a sort of snapshot medium, but, a, but a, a lengthy process material, as it were.
1: Absolutely. It was the whole process, not just of how long it takes to make a photograph, but then waiting anxiously for the lab to send the negatives back, then making a choice for the prints, and then seeing what she did with the prints, Which was which album would it go into, what would she write behind it. So photography was never to just make photos. You're so right. It started from then, actually.
0: So if that was a sort of trauma then, as you describe it, of your childhood, did photography always loom as something that you wanted to do? Or did you resist the trauma, as it were, and and avoid photography for some time?
1: If there was one thing I didn't want to do, it was photography, because photography delayed every departure in my life. Every birthday party I was late for... It was really annoying to be photographed so much and in such a serious sort of way. They were never fun pictures. It was quite a a ritual, a whole process to make one single photograph. And when I look at the photographs now, I think it had a lot to do with my mother not so much with me. I was perhaps proof of the fancy dress. She used to make me into Mother Mary for all the Christmas parties. You know, so whatever she had stitched... For me, I felt it was more about her or when she put me on a chaise long in the hotel in Srinagar to establish she had been in the room, uh, one of her finest photographs, I could have rolled over and broken my head and that would have been the end of me. But she was determined to somehow establish that she was living in that room and so therefore I was there as proof.
0: And so when did photography Become something that you felt a compulsion to make?
1: It was really a great uh, moment of chance. I had gone to do a class assignment. I had to photograph the moods of a person. I went to photograph Saki Hossein, the tabla player, because I knew he made lots of faces when he played. And so, you know, I thought I would do my assignment, class assignment, and go to Bombay for the weekend to party. But the organizer asked me to stop, and I fell. And I fell on my backside in a hall full of people. And I was 18 and I was so humiliated. So I went and I sat outside on the steps and I waited for the concert to finish. And Zakir came out. He was not such a big star at that time. So there were not lots of people. And I stood up and I said, Mr. Hussain, I'm a young student today. Someday I'll be an important photographer. Then we'll see. And I started crying. Anyway. So he helped me understand why i couldn't take photographs because Raviji had added a fret to his sitar he didn't want it documented, all of that, and he said I could photograph him the next morning because when he rehearsed, he also made the same faces, and that night was really like the turning point for me because I sat up with my friends all night whether to go or not to go, you know to photograph him and we decided I was going to go and this was going to be my ticket to freedom because at that time I didn't know any women in photography and we thought if I can photograph then I can go wherever I like and travel with whoever I like and be whatever I like and most importantly that I didn't have to get married and have children that I could just say to people, you know, I'd love to but I'm I'm a photographer and people believed me. It was, it was quite sweet and innocent then.
0: And, of course, almost right from the start, there's been a questioning of photography in your work in the sense that you resist the single image. It's one of the m- sort of most common themes in your work is the resistance of a single photographic image on the wall. But, of course, it takes all sorts of elements to lead up to that point. And, for instance, you you were a, a documentary photographer. And when you were making documentary photographs, did you even then have a sort of... Fundamental problem with that single image, if you like, the decisive moment.
1: Absolutely. And I think you nailed it, uh, Ben, when you said that it's actually the process. I was used to a whole process around a photograph. Uh, The idea that you would just have a single image on the wall didn't exist for me. And yet that's what everybody was doing. And I was very uncomfortable with it. And even when I was doing the documentary work, and in a way, I'm still a documentary photographer, but I just don't like the boxes that you get put into with photography, with documentary. So I put something on Instagram the other days. I thought I'd read it out because it's really sums up where I am right now. My medium is photography. I twist it and turn it. I wrestle with it until the form reveals itself to me. That is my work as an artist to excavate the potentials photography is pregnant with. So my understanding of photography seemed at a very different level to what I saw around me. And I think that has been the dilemma and why I sort of insist people don't call me a photographer. Of course I'm a photographer, but I want the freedom that an artist has because I think photography is a great medium. I don't think it's an end in itself. I don't even know if... uh, you know, the time I have in my life is enough. Obviously, there will be other people and there will be so many other ways in which photography will will grow. We're still at a very nascent stage and the possibilities are endless. So I don't know why museums, galleries, photographers themselves, photo festivals uh, limit photography to the wall, to the book, to a print, that's fine. But there's so much, so much more. I am continuously surprised, you know, I don't come up to my studio, because I look there, and I get another idea. Then I look on the other side, I get another, I can't keep up with my ideas. And that's not not to do with me, it's to do with the medium of photography, that it has all these possibilities.
0: That's great. And uh, To what extent do you see yourself as also a sculptor? I mean, in the sense that, so much of your work is such a physical manifestation of image and space, so tell me do you do you ever use that term in relation to your work?
1: Yes, so initially, when I made these structures, I wanted to call them photo sculpture because that is how I got to them. I was envious of how people, including myself, responded to my friends' sculptures. You walk around it, you bend down, you have a physical response no in your belly to some sculptures Uh, and when you look at prints on a wall it's just with your eyes and in one sweep you get the entire room and you know it might be two years of my life it might be 20 years of my life but you don't have to do anything you're very passive I didn't like that about photography that was one of the reasons for making the earlier forms was so that you would have to engage with your entire body if you wanted to see the work so that is my biggest thrill is walking into a museum where you're not supposed to touch anything and then just sliding my pieces around taking them out putting them on the wall and there was trouble when I did this at MoMA while the director was giving his speech I was moving this museums my museums with my knees but except the museums were no longer my museum no now they belong to MoMA and there are art handlers and you don't just move things around and so it transpired. I think it was Stuart who then said, maybe you need to get a performance contract for your work and not a photography contract, because we have to touch it. You know, at least I have grown up with prints. They're tactile things. They're in your hands, in shoeboxes. You You do different things with them. So how can the institutions determine what photography is going to be? So therefore, it was really important to find a form where I could go inside the institution and say, maybe this could be a way. Maybe there are other ways if you let us. And since you didn't let me, I've made my own form. And so to see Museum of Chance at MoMA was really a highlight of my life because if they acquired Museum of Chance, it meant they acquired my critique of the museum and my critique of the way photography is museumized. And that was really possible because I thought of the works as sculpture. I I just didn't want to say it like that because I wanted photography to find its own language, you know, that we don't have to take from other disciplines, even though I like to call a book a novel or a sonnet. But we're just starting with photography. There are so many possibilities. And so sculpture was certainly the one that drew me the strongest.
0: Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. Who was the first artist whose work you loved?
1: When I was growing up, there was a miniature painting of Bani Thani. It's painted in the 1750s. It's by a miniature painter called Nihal Chand. Bani Thani was a court singer. And this was a portrait, which was quite unusual for miniature paintings a singular portrait, unusual for women to be in a singular portrait. There were plenty of men in singular portraits. But the fascinating thing I remember was that you bought these, this miniature print from the government uh, Lalitkala Academy in a green handmade folder, and this was tipped in. And then you could frame it with the handmade mat at the back, or you could take it to the cottage industries and pick one of the colours from the miniature and make a raw silk border and then put your frame so that was art to me other than my mother's paintings of which there was a lot but in terms of from the outside that was the first artwork and it was an artwork that hung in many homes in many of my friends homes because the idea that you would buy a painting was not quite there that was maybe for the super wealthy people or more for royalty but we were happy to have these reproduction prints And then it also became a stamp, a large stamp. And that was it. So I think it wasn't just the painting. It was the fact that it could be bought by so many people and then it could be disseminated in the stamp. You know, like this is art. It can be in some king's house museum or palace, but I could have a printout of it and it could be a stamp on a letter that I might send to you. So look how art travels. And I guess that too got determined quite early on, that art must travel.
0: That's so fascinating in the context of the multiple forms and multiple sort of democratic forms that your own work takes. And do you ever connect those dots, if you like?
1: You know, nobody's going to believe me if I say this, but I didn't connect the dots till your questions came in. And then I thought, actually, what was that work of art? And Why did I like it so much? You know, it's a beautiful painting. I'll send it to you. But it was also the fact that it was everywhere. And now I was calling friends in the last days to say, did you have it? Did you have it? They all grew up with it. And everyone remembers the stamp. So now, because of your questions, I think I can make very strong connections there, you know?
0: I'm conscious that when we were leading up to this interview, you were saying that a lot of your references were local. And I'm aware of sort of, you know museum structures Mm. the the dissemination of art in India is so different to the way it is here in the UK where I'm based and I'm wondering about sort of in terms of how you encountered art as a as a young person growing up were western traditions entering into your cultural outlook as it were?
1: My mother had been to uh, Italy and she had brought back books of the Uffizi, I think. So there were five or six art books of Renaissance masters. But that was it. There weren't the museums where you would go to and see great Western art. Certainly not. But you see, our whole idea of museums is very different. I don't think I grew up with this awe of museums until I went to the West. Ten years ago, the most visited museum in India was Indira Gandhi's House Museum where 10,000 people would come a day. The National Gallery of Modern Art at that time had 300 to 400 visitors a day. So wherever I travel in India, the first thing I do, if I go to Calcutta, the first thing I want to do is to go to the India Museum to see the diorama section. But then if I go to Chennai, I rush to the MGR Museum because you can be photographed with his ambassador car, which has the reading light on, And then you can go to the first floor and be photographed with his pet lion, Raja, taxidermied, and you stand next to him. And the whole museum is made of these thousands of trophies that people made for him. So I think we have a very different sense of museums in India, certainly, and a certain propensity for this kind of house museum. You know, if somebody passes away, the first thing you would do is make their bed, put their photograph on the bed put a garland, maybe put a little tikka on on their forehead. So in a way, they're still alive. In that photograph, it becomes a shrine. And who knows, in some cases, it becomes a museum. So the museum was not this daunting presence. If anything, it was like, this is the shaving brush that Kamraj used, or this is the last pressure cooker he used. And the dioramas in the India Museum would be about the tribals, as the British saw them, but they're life-size dioramas. So they were more like these wonder houses, you know, and the possibility to to look inside Nehru's house, for example, in Allahabad, you know, and I was photographing, I was on the inside and they had made a glass cabinet so people would come in to have a look into her room and they saw me standing there and they got really scared because they thought there was a ghost. <laughs> so it's a different life with museums and I think therefore my connection with museums is also quite different but the main difference is really in photography, I think. Not the main, but in how I see photography and how I see photography institutionalized, festivalized, photographerized.
0: <laughs> Which historical artist do you return to the most today?
1: You know, I have, there's so many. Hamashoi at one time the fact that he made all Mm. these paintings in one room. I remember when I was, after I'd made Go Away Closer, I was very moved to see Hamashoy. And um, I made Go Away Closer listening to Mahler's first symphony, second movement, I think, on a loop, 24 hours a day for two weeks, because I thought, can I aspire to all those emotions? Of course I couldn't, but it's just, but I think, in the recent years the artist i keep going back to and i did a talk recently about her is Anna Atkins in to my mind the mother of photography daguerre showed us how to fix the image or talbot for that matter as well but anna atkins who studied under talbot showed us what to do with the image because she made these cyanotype books of all the ferns uh, in her region but then She didn't make editions, she made versions. She made 13 different versions. She designed everything herself and some she sewed and some she asked the people who got the books to sew them themselves. And I'm sure some accidents happened, but I think she was already moving photography into a direction that I was feeling starved for in photography. So if I have to trace my lineage, it's just Anna Atkins, my mother's album, and me, and the grant from Robert Frank, and Robert Frank.
0: Anna Atkins, I mean, obviously one of the things, as you, you hinted at there, it's, it's the objecthood of yes. those works, isn't yes. it, that, that makes them so compelling. And they are so contemporary in the way they looked even today, aren't they?
1: Absolutely. And the fact that she didn't go towards editions, you know, editions came much later, Uh, She showed us versions, and I think that would have been truer to photography rather than what Stieglitz and Steichen did, because they had to, right? How is photography going to be taken seriously in the art world if it didn't have editions? But if I was there at the time, I would have said, guys, look at Anna Atkins and let's do versions, because that is more true to photography rather than making editions. Now that it's digital, it's different, You can have editions, I guess. But I think that was a mistake that we made for photography and editions is what holds photography back.
0: Uh, Which contemporary artists do you most admire?
1: Oh, there's lots. Ronnie Horn, Lynette, Zoe Leonard, Tacita Dean. An artist I would have loved to have known more and still go back to is Nasreen Mohammadi. Mm -hmm. And I think... Now that I make so many montages, even more so, but even before that, and and she's most known for her drawings, but she made beautiful photographs and made darkroom collages out of them, montages out of them, and not known till a few years ago, not so known till a few years ago. Yeah, Nasreen Mohammadi and Zarina Hashmi, two artists that I would love to include in the contemporary, even though they're not alive.
0: Indeed. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned Ronnie Horne and, and Tacita Dean there, because both guests on this podcast in the past, but both of them are united, I think, with a profound concern with poetry. And we'll come to literature later. But this idea of a kind of art as a poetic form, it seems to me you thought a lot about about a kind of literary form that photography and, and art in a broader sense can take.
1: Yes, because I think I felt so restricted by photography And yet every time I would open a literary book, my mind would just fly. And so I thought I have to find other forms. You know, if I can't stay in this little box of photography and I started to look to literature uh, for the forms and I, you know, when I made Go Away Closer, I sometimes called it a sonnet and I called it a novella and the new book, Let's See, is a complete novel. It's a photo novel. But poetry, I mean, you know, one aspires to that quality that, say, a poem of Vikram Seth might have. One hopes one can have that, maybe not in a photograph, but in the sequence of photographs. So I'm not looking for the poetic in an image, but that poetry could be there in the object that is created or the sequence that is built with images. So not about poetic images in themselves, but the two artists Ronnie Horn and Tacita I think have been very important for many, many of us because it's also for me the Ronnie Horn is very important to also understand what is contemporary and how to think the contemporary. And I'm very fortunate to work with Fritz Street Gallery because all the artists there, Cornelia Parker, Fiona Banner, Tacita there's a lot of thought in the work and somehow that has all been my sort of growing into uh, becoming an artist that's been part of it. It's interesting
0: you saying about, about a lot of thought in the work because Ronnie and Cornelia and Tacita are in some ways artists who engage very directly with the history of so-called conceptualism and I wonder, if do you see yourself engaging with that tradition in some ways? Do you see yourself as a conceptual artist?
1: You know, I do. I absolutely do. And I hope someday somebody else will see that too. But every time I try to say it, everybody says, no, 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 Anita conceptual art has this history of in America. And so you can't call yourself a conceptual artist. And I said, well, that can't be the only history of conceptual art. And maybe I'll make my own conceptual art. But I think what I do Ben is really, it's its a conceptual work. When I make those boxes where you have to change the images every day and you can only buy one at a time, um, then you have to go somewhere else to Kyoto to buy another box. I mean, thats that's all my conceptual work. I think photography has really just been the medium. But, you know, I call myself an artist so that everybody doesn't sort of tell me, no, 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 you can't call yourself a conceptual artist. But I think that is what I am. It's just that nobody else sees it like that. But that's too bad.
0: Um, I always ask people what they have around them, which images they have pinned around them in the studio wall. Because you're an artist for whom so many images exist in your installations, I'm intrigued by what your actual studio looks like.
1: We're sitting in a busy part of the studio, but I usually have the blinds down because I like everything to be white. And then in the kitchen, I have Ronnie Horn's cards. Ronnie makes these beautiful large cards, triptychs, and they become like little works themselves, you know. So I couldn't afford to have a work of Ronnie's, but I could certainly have those cards. And so the, there's three cards and there's a beautiful poster of Zoe's Whitney exhibition. You know, the image with the blue suitcases. Ah, uh, yes. That's the, that's the only artwork I have uh, in my studio
0: you're talking about having lots of whiteness around you and not having that much in terms of other artworks around you. Is that about concentration, about the sort of means to sort of focus on your own projects?
1: Absolutely. Just to focus, not even on the projects, but just to focus. And I... So in my apartment, which is downstairs, there's nothing on the walls and I feel that's the greatest luxury and that's the most beautiful painting because the light comes in at about three in the afternoon. And then it does this dance till about 5.30. So all through COVID, I would sit in the afternoon and, you know, day after day, that painting would emerge in front of me and it would slightly change. And in the beginning, I got very excited and I made all these photographs and then I looked at them and they all looked the same. So it's impossible to photograph. But, you know, there's no finer work of art than a white wall that's hit by light. I think it's that Louis Kahn quote, light didn't know what she was till she hit a wall, something like that.
0: A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. The app offers access to more than 50 cultural institutions through a single download, ranging from museums and botanical gardens to prominent art installations and libraries. If you download Bloomberg Connects, you can explore the digital guide to the New York Public Library and get a sneak peek of the Polonsky exhibition of its treasures via a dramatic drone video that takes viewers from the Plaza on Fifth Avenue through the library and around a display of extraordinary items drawn from across its 56 million strong collections. There's also an audio guide in English and Spanish offering insights into individual highlights on show. In a few taps, you can jump west to the Huntington Library, Art Museum and Botanical Gardens in California for an audio tour of highlights spanning medieval cookery books, the Japanese garden and the recently commissioned A Portrait of a Young Gentleman by Kehinde Wiley, a previous guest on this podcast. To explore interactive guides to all the partnering institutions, download Bloomberg Connects today. The app is available from the App Store and Google Play and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We talked about museums earlier on, but which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently?
1: In Delhi, I still like going to the Indira Gandhi uh, House Museum because it's fascinating to see how people come there and how fascinated they are by seeing her sari covered with blood, by seeing her bedroom. It's full of all this beautiful Eames furniture. And then in Calcutta, I like to go to the India Museum. But of course, if I'm in London, the first place I want to go to is the Tate and, you know, spend a day over there because one is starved for museums, that kind of museum. And then I love going to the Met, but I have to say time and again, I go back to MoMA because with a defiance. It's like, show me what you're going to do with photography now. And I was so impressed when they uh, changed two years ago, 2019, when they reopened the new building, you know, how they had incorporated photography in in so many different rooms. And I thought, thank God about time. And, you know, it was just, it was unbelievable that my Museum of Chance was there as, as well. And Glenn Lowry was giving a talk and I was in the elevator and I saw this Charlie saying, "Dianita, Singh, Museum of Chance, Glenn Lowry, and I was like, I couldn't believe it. To his credit, he was saying, this is what I would like my museum to be, that it's continuously changing with endless possibilities so it doesn't get fossilised. And I thought, that's amazing for him to even make that comment. And so I was very moved because I didn't expect in my lifetime that people would understand what I was doing with the museums. You know, people are often dismissive when you are not quite fitting the box. And then to think that the director of MoMA got it, you know, and the curators. I thought, well, that is really, I mean, I've been very lucky, I suppose, that that happened in my lifetime, you know.
0: It's really interesting with, with the Museum of Chance and the Museum Bhavan in general, this creation of a museum within a museum that you've made. Because it seems to me that you thought extremely in depth about the nature of museums, mm-hmm. in the sense that the Museum Bavan has a reserve collection. You know, there are these things exist in in a way in a kind of full reconstruction of a museum, but within your terms, in your language, if you like.
1: Exactly. I love museums. I completely love museums. I just don't like what they do, especially to photography. I don't like, I don't see why they can't be more interactive. And so the critique is very well-meant critique. And therefore it was important to make that critique from inside the museum. And then when all my museums got acquired, I was so so depressed because I thought, now they're going to sit in storage, you know. I didn't know MoMA would show it or Mm. Louisiana would show it. That's when I went to Steidl and we made the box, of the miniature museums. So MoMA only has Museum of Chance, but you can buy that box and have all nine museums. And so who's to say what's more valuable? That's been an important thing for me as well. And that's part of my conceptual work is to play with the value, to question the value, to try and shift the value. And that's why I make those boxes with those image cards. And so far it's been it's been fine. I'm sure I'll run into a problem. But that's okay, that's fine. I've got plans for that too.
0: While we're on the subject of museum, I wanted to talk about your engagement with the Gardener Museum. And it seems to me this is quite an, a fascinating moment in your career because it, you made the chair pieces there. And it was this moment where absence came into your work in a, in a big way to a certain degree, but it's, it's a pregnant absence. So tell us about the chair work and the role of absence in your work.
1: Well, I think absence came into my work quite directly because I was so much in love with, with with this man and then it didn't work out. And then suddenly all the people disappeared from my photographs. So I owe it to him actually to introduce me to the idea of absence and look where I took it. So the Go Away Closer title, in fact, comes directly from that. But the Gardner Museum was a very, very important experience for me. And I think on one hand, it tied together my experience of museums in India, the house museums that I was describing. But on the other hand, to have this idea of Mrs. Gardner having thought about having an artist in residence program so that the artist could be alive. And then all the things that the artist in residence is allowed, including a torchlight tour of all the incredible artwork there. I mean, that Rembrandt by Torchlight is, you can't even look at it with daylight after that because it's something else, you know. It was, of course, painted in candlelight. So, you know, the Torchlight comes closest. They wouldn't allow candles in there. (laughs) But the gardener experience was just being there. But also, I think the photographs that I made of the chairs there were infused with this fresh, absence that had entered my heart you know the the chairs became these people as everything I photograph becomes a personality it's never just a glass so the chairs became people and they had genders and they had oh this is the angry chair and all of that and then because I was sitting in Boston and my studio was not there I started cutting my medium format contact sheets and I had contact sheets also of all the chairs work that I'd been doing because I processed the film there. And I cut them up and pasted them in this accordion fold book and Pirana happened to come to the studio and said... This is a
0: curator. This is
1: amazing. Yeah, Pirana Cavalcini, an incredibly important curator in my life. So when Pirana said, why don't we make this into your artist book? And that was amazing because... I said, well, if it's an artist's book, then I should be able to determine everything. And she said, yeah, absolutely. I said, including the selling? She said, yes. So I said, in which case, I don't want to sell it. I would like everybody to be gifted the book because then they'll value it differently, you know? If you had to buy it, it would be maybe $20. But if you get it as a gift, it's no longer about money, it's something else. And she said, how do you propose to distribute these 500 copies? And I said... You know, give me your FedEx account. I'll send 10 copies to each friend in different parts of the world. And they hand out these books to whoever they want to. They don't have to tell me. But they can't sell them. And so, you know, Jonathan in Birmingham said, this is too elitist. I'm going to give the books to the first 10 people I meet today. The bus conductor, the receptionist in his museum, whoever came to meet him that day and kept one for himself. So different people found their own modes of dissemination. I had found a way to disseminate my work outside the market. And the icing on the cake was when I went to meet Saul Lewitt. And, um, you know, what does one take to this great conceptual artist? So I couldn't take him flowers. And, you know, he'd very kindly invited me home for lunch. So I took him my edition of the Chairs book, one of the 10 of my edition, and I said, you know, I brought you this. And he started laughing and he said, keep it, there, Anita. I have three already. I know the whole story. <laughs> so, you know, this is amazing. I mean, Saul Lut gets three of my chair's books. It made me really, amazing. yeah, yeah.
0: Let's move on to um, cultural experiences. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world?
1: The earliest museum I remember going to is the Dolls Museum in Delhi which is a museum of all the dolls that have been gifted to the Indian government by various state heads. And even then, my favorite was the gift that the Americans gave to the Indian government, which is a diorama of a couple in two single beds. And he's reading a book and she has her legs sort of languorously thrown towards him. And even as a child, I remember thinking, wow, in the middle of all the Japanese dolls, you can have something like this from America. I mean, how bold of America, no, to send a present like that. But then to come home and to find that in our very own display cabinet, which if you were middle, upper middle class, all the houses had these display cabinets with little souvenirs, and we had the same Japanese doll. And so the idea that, yes, there's a museum there of dolls, but I have a small museum in my own house. With the same things. It's called the Shankar's Dolls Museum. And there used to be a painting competition held there. And so my mother used to take us there every year. It was the thing to do. I don't think there was any other museum that we were taken to. Except the Dolls Museum. So yes, the Shankar's Dolls Museum made me feel that, you know, it's possible to make your own museum.
0: Which writers or poets do you return to the most?
1: I wanted to show you something, even though this is a podcast. (laughs) I've had this now for 18 years and it's now in two parts because it's so old. It's Letters to a Young Poet, Rilke. Right. And I have it from when I was 18, when I first went to NID uh, to study design It has always been with me somehow, and it's falling apart, but it's a very important book to me. In terms of poetry, I think the book I keep going back to is Vikram Seth's All You Who Sleep Tonight, but then equally Michael Ondaatje's Handwriting. And there's one poem which is completely about absence, and I think the tag is also from the time of absence. It's What We
0: Lost. You've talked about What We Lost haven't you, in the past and how it seems in in a way almost an illustration of your work. It's almost like it was written for your work even though it, in fact it wasn't.
1: Yes, I mean that's the most amazing thing about reading. You know, you find like Rilke's letters I thought were written for me. I was the artist he was writing to and what we lost especially at the time of the chairs was such an important poem for me because it felt like it had been written for my work and of course it wasn't. And Ondachi has been a very important writer i think if i had to teach a course on editing i would just refer to all his books that would be my course that because he's such a master of withholding you know the story never settles and that's such a great quality to aspire to in a photo book or in photography because it's too photography is so obvious it's all there and then how do you how do you undo that factness of photography and so Michael Ondaatje was important both as a writer and as a poet.
0: And you know Vikram Set, right? He's somebody that you have a dialogue with or conversation with.
1: Not a lot, but a little bit. But the writing is something else. So at one time I took his book and I, I made go way closer out of the same sense of loss uh, because I thought there were no words for what I was Putting in that book and that's why I made the book those 28 photographs simple little book and then I read all you who sleep tonight and I thought no somebody is writing about all those things that I thought were unsayable and then I cut his poems and I pasted them into my book and I made him a copy I like to make gifts for people
0: let's talk about books generally because you are an artist of books as well as much as you are a photographer and One of the qualities about those books, this extraordinary commitment that you have to the accordion books, for instance, and it's the quality of the printing. They are absolutely artworks in their own right. And you've worked with some of the great bookmakers, the great printers that there are. So tell us about that commitment and some of the experiences you've had with those printers.
1: So the accordion fold book as a form became important to me because that's when I realised that the book could be the exhibition itself. The book didn't have to be a catalogue of the exhibition. So sent a letter is a box with seven exhibitions in it. And so you can show it in your museum. People have started to show it now. And it's no longer only a book, but it is a book also. So that's about the form. I think I have been incredibly lucky in first working with Walter Keller of Scarlo Books, this great publisher in the 90s. And then through him meeting Gerhard Steidel who has really been a co-conspirator in how we might shift the book. And the experience of being at press, you know, of designing the book, making the layouts and then going down to press is invaluable. And I think he's possibly the only place on earth where you can do that, where everything happens in the same place. The designers are there, the proofers are there, the scanners are there. And the printing is right there. The chair's book, for example, was the fastest book Steidl ever printed because we printed it in 45 minutes because it's all on one sheet of paper. But I think uh, over the years, Gerhard and I have built this relationship where we like to challenge each other, you know? So it's always like, so how are we going to do this? Uh, Because somehow he feels that he's able to experiment with me And somehow I feel that I can bring any thought to the table, even if it's uh, putting the gutter through my photographs, and he will see it. So to have the support of someone like that, and more than just support, you know, he makes it possible. Uh, I struggle when I have to work with other printers, as I'm having to right now, because I think the mastery that Steidl has over his black and white there's nobody on earth who has that because he mixes his own inks. He's not just going by Pantone colors. He's a chef. He's a master chef. Printing is a skill anyway, but Gerhard takes it to another level. He even designs his own papers. You know, the Zantour paper that we all loved so much was co-designed by Gerhard. And he's impossible to work with. (laughs) <laughs> uh, a nightmare to work with. And, you know, the last time I was there, I said, this is it. Now I'm going to, you know, and then try working with someone else. It's impossible. So in that sense, I feel handicapped. But on the other hand, I made spontaneous books because sometimes waiting for shtidel takes the magic out of what you want to do. And spontaneous books was made so that I can print in India and make my work available in India. I can sit at press here so I worked for the boxes with Pragati press in Hyderabad and now for my new doshi book with Naveen printers in Delhi and I showed it to Gerard and he said it's good it's pretty good <laughs> so he doesn't indeed yeah.
0: <laughs> so I, I want while we're talking about printers I want to talk about watercolor and particularly the fact that You made with him one of your most famous books, which is "Myself, Mona Ahmed." It's an extraordinary story, which one could do a whole podcast just about this particular work. But we should, (laughs) maybe we should exactly tell us about Mona and and that connection because you you encountered Mona Ahmed as a photojournalist initially. Yes, but became it became a an enormously close relationship, but also a project which which went far beyond that original commission. Didn't
1: absolutely, absolutely, and that's why someday we must do a podcast, even if it's a private one just for you and me, but it's there's really so much there. The book was just the starting point. I met Mona on an assignment for the London Times, actually, because you had to photograph in those days, Maharajas, uh, prostitutes, as they were called then, and eunuchs. These were sort of the expectations from India. And I had heard about Mona, a eunuch who lived in Old Delhi, who was the best dancer, And so I wanted to meet her and photograph her. And she, when I said, may I photograph you? It used to be in those days quite difficult to get access into the world of eunuchs. But I was able to. And she said, fine. I took pictures that whole day. And then I said to her, you know, the people in London Times will be really happy uh, with these photographs. Because she had just adopted a baby girl, Aisha. And it was a very moving day for me. And she said, London Times? You told me New York Times, I have too many relatives in London. Please give me the film back. So I gave Mona the film and she threw it into the wet garbage, not even the dry garbage, you know, <laughs> into the wet garbage. And I looked at it, this yellow roll of triax, and I thought, there goes my career, because what do I tell the commissioning editor? And she hugged me. And it was an embrace that lasted her entire life. I was in Venice on a vaporetto from uh, Zatare to Judecca when I got a call from her phone, and there she was. Her nephew had put her on the speakerphone, and there she was, dying. But even at that time, somehow wanted the image to be recorded. And I was, of course, as you can imagine, you know, hysterical. Luckily, had my dearest friends with me, and saying, "Muna, stop it! You can't die! I'm coming back! I'm coming back!" And then she passed before I had reached Judeka. And I was devastated because she, by then she had become my closest friend. You know, I would call her before I would call my mother even. That was very important to her. I, I don't even know how to describe our relationship. You know, it, it was everything. It was so many relationships in one. and And that's why I get so, so upset when people talk of Mona, the hijra, you know, when everybody wants to talk about the eunuch. She was the most unique person I met in my life. You know, so that she was a eunuch is part of who she was. But that's not all. You know, she used to build a staircase because there should be a staircase. But there was nowhere the staircase went. She built these elaborate metal grills, which are built for protection, but the sides were all open. So she was, in fact, the conceptual artist that nobody, including me, fully recognized. And I think there it was sadly a question of class because if she was in another class, she would be taken very seriously. Uh, To give you an example of how she thought, and God knows how that has influenced me. I mean, that's, that's a whole other podcast. When Walter Keller decided to make the book, he said, she'll write the text. And I said, you know, you have no idea. You're a white person sitting in Switzerland. What do you know about what it's like to live as a eunuch in a graveyard where she had finally moved because she couldn't, she just was her own person. You know, she couldn't be like everybody else, not even the eunuchs. So she came to live in the graveyard. And he said, well, at least ask her, do me that favor, just ask her. So I sent a fax to my mother to say, can you drive to the graveyard and ask Mona what she says? And in the fax I wrote, the world's best publisher would like to make a book on your unique self. Do you agree? Answer me urgent. She sent a fax back through, through my mother saying, whole world calls me eunuch. You call me unique. First you tell me which is true, then I will answer you. <laughs> and that's when Walter Keller said, she's going to write the book. It's her story. And I see it as a huge failure of the book if people still think of Mona as the eunuch. Because who has the courage to go and build a house in a graveyard and then to attempt to build a swimming pool so that they can teach Muslim girls how to swim so they will be liberated? That's like maybe the most unique artist I know.
0: At this point in the interview, I ask about music and I want to immediately go from talking about Mona to talking about music because, in fact, there's an extraordinary video piece that you made which is of Mona lip-syncing to an Mm. Indian song from a film from the 1950s. Yes. It's such an extraordinary work. Can you describe that piece for me?
1: That piece made itself... uh, So much of my work around Mona, the montages I'm making now, make themselves... Mona has special powers, you know. And so even though she's not physically present in the world, she's still activating my work. You'll see when you come to Berlin. She had been asking me to find this particular song, Rasik Balma, and I had found it and I wanted to just photograph her face when she heard it because it had been so long that I said, yes, yes, when you come, we'll play it. And I made a video. I don't know why I made a video but I pressed the video button. I don't know whether it was a mistake. I don't know. I don't know. But it just... And I watched her become the song through my viewfinder, you know? And that's that's perhaps what is so moving for you when you see the video because it's not trying to be anything. It's just... It's like a moving photograph where she becomes the song. And that's that's all that there is to it. And... In the Berlin show, I'm also showing a few days before that, she had come and asked me to record her reciting poetry in one take. So it's 11 minutes of Mona reciting one Shairi after the other. And so I'm very excited to show that after so many years. But Mona loved the video you're talking about. And I think she must have watched it about a thousand times. And we would cry together when we would watch it, she really loved that piece
0: you you almost talk about her as a kind of curator of that project of of the all work around her is that so she in a way she was your collaborator. she wasn't your subject
1: oh absolutely. by the time I met Mona, I was very clear that the problem for me with photojournalism was the subject you know when I met her, it was clear that i had to this had to be a collaboration and anyway, with Mona, the first uh 10 years were not even meant to be anything. I was actually just photographing her to finish the role in my film, you know. I would come back from an assignment and there would be six frames left. Or if she had a birthday party for Aisha, which were huge events lasting three, four days, then I would be the staff photographer because she then didn't have to pay me. So the book also sort of made itself. Had I known that I would make a book of Mona, I would have photographed her so much more. It's not a lot of photographs that that book is made from. I would make about 10 times or 100 times more photographs if I was going to make a book on a person. But I had already made the book with Zakir. So to me, it just seemed it was fine. This is what you do with photography.
0: You mentioned Zakir Hussein there and, and you've talked about how, earlier in this podcast about how, you know, that was a very seminal assignment. He's also been a sort of moral kind of guide. He, he gave you advice in those very early days about commitment to your work, which stay with you. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I still think I have three mentors, Zakir, Mona and my mother. From Zakir, I learned to focus, razor sharp focus. All the time. I think it was from Zakir that I learned how to live the life of an artist. And through the travels, what I hadn't realized, I I used to travel every winter with him and all the other musicians that he traveled with. And I would just make photographs uh, that we will see in the Berlin show for the first time. Not the ones of Zakir, but all the other musicians. You know, this idea of Riyaz, that you have to, have to keep keep working, keep trying to do more, keep challenging yourself. Zakir used to tell me, you have to know your medium like the back of your hand before you can challenge it. So don't start doing things too soon. You know, advice like that. And I listened to him. And that's why I think I can do these things now because I took the time. Walter Keller also told me, take your time. You know, don't rush into books and exhibitions. And somehow... I just had this great advice and I thank God that I just listened to them. And Zakir has been a presence all through. It's, you know, I've known him now more than 40 years. So I think when I photograph, it's rare for people that I photograph to leave. Somehow it just continues and it's the same people again and again, which is why I think my archive is so rich. And that's what's happened in this show for Berlin. I've really mined the archive and found all these connections that I didn't know were in my work.
0: You mentioned that you listened to Mahler's First Symphony religiously as you made a particular work earlier on. Do you still listen to that or are there other things which which you listen to as you work?
1: You know, like the Rilke book, Mahler's First Symphony, Second Movement has become like a touchstone for me, you know. So from time to time I listen to it. But When I'm working, I don't listen to anything now. I like to be, as Ronnie would say, back to zero. But I'm quite conscious of what I do before I'm working. And in recent years, the preparation for me has been to listen not to the great Kishori Amonkar singing necessarily, but speaking. There is something in the way that she talks about music, and it's there with Zakir also, that I can immediately transfer to photography. More than any photography writing, any photography thinking, somehow the music. I can even show you, this is another book that Sheila Dhar wrote uh, called Raga and Josh where she's explaining what a rag is in these two pages, and I've actually scratched out rag and written photography. Right. Because that's all that photography can be, or at least can aspire to be, if everyone would let it out of those boxes that it's got put into.
0: Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual?
1: Trite as it sounds, taking a deep breath, but I mean a serious, serious deep breath, a long inhale with a pause and a long exhale and to somehow sit very consciously with the spine erect, even if it's for a little while, just to get into the mode, you know, and to sort of dress for work, to create the mahal for work to happen. Because when I come into the studio, I don't know what's going to happen necessarily. If I've read... Or if I've been looking at Austerlitz, which is my favorite photography book, Sebald's Austerlitz, if I've looked at that, I know that I will be charged in a certain way when I come to the studio. If I have been reading In Praise of Shadows, which is another book I come back to from time to time, Tanizaki. So there's a preparation that goes into coming into the studio. The breathing, the dressing, the sitting is very much part of it because I like the ritual of it. And then it's just allowing things to emerge for accidents to happen, really. A lot of my work is accidents. So I think I have maybe if there's something I've mastered, it's mastered the art of making accidents happen or recognizing the accidents, you know, and saying, okay, so the film turned blue. That's fine. I'm going to make this into the blue work. And so I made Blue Book. But it's a series of accidents,
0: that's interesting you mentioned the blue book there, because we haven't yet talked about colour. Mm. And I think it's really, it's really crucial that for a long time you resisted colour. And I'm interested in the reasons you resisted colour and about, again, this resistance to cliches about your homeland that you referred to earlier on, about India was so associated with colour that you felt that you had to resist it to a certain degree.
1: Yes, yes. I'm finally ready to answer that question. The problem with me for photography has been that it's too much about the where and the when. It's too much about the fact. And I think partly my learning was in black and white, and black and white meant I could process it myself and I could make the prints myself. So there was the convenience. But more than that, I think I liked that one layer of abstraction that black and white brought to the work. But I don't know if I lived in a different part of the world. If I lived in Sweden, perhaps I would have been more generous with color. But because of India and the light that we have, the kind of color that you can end up with, or certainly was the trend in those days, it was all about color. You know, you could reduce any ghastly story to blobs of color. So I was very resistant to color. And I still say that I will only use color if color is doing something more than itself. And of course, there are great colour photographers who know how to do that all the time. Saul Leiter, Eggleston, you know, but I don't have that skill. So for me, the colour has to do something else as it did with Blue Book, which led to Dream Villa
0: If you could live with one work of art, what would it be?
1: If I could have two, I would love to have one of the glass pieces of Ronnie Horn. But if I could only have one, and Ronnie will agree with me, I'm sure. I must send her an image of the goddess Lajagori. And I know the one I want, it's in the museum in Badami. And Lajagori is the goddess of fertility. Actually, should be on the ground with her legs up in a birthing position and a flower covering her head. So you don't see her face. And it's in the museum in Badami on the wall. So it's not really doing it complete justice because it should be on the ground. And they've had to put a barricade around it because people were coming and putting milk on her vagina so they would get a child then, you know, as Mm -hmm. an offering. But the power in that sculpture, in the Lajjagori sculpture, is something I could live with for the rest of my life. You know, just to have that... Uh, in my presence, in my daily life, would be amazing. Amazing.
0: And lastly, what's art for?
1: That was the really difficult question for me because I thought, like, I could write hundreds of words, you know. How could I say what art is for? So I did write a few, and I'm going to read them. Art is for challenging, for revealing, for risking, for offering, for joining, for living and for me art is for its dissemination art has to travel art has to move it has to move out of institutions and galleries and that's my suitcase museum right there
0: Dionita thank you so much for joining us on the podcast
1: Ben thank you so much you have helped me piece together so many dots in my own work
0: Dianita Singh, Dancing With My Camera, is at the Gropiusbau in Berlin from the 18th of March to the 7th of August 2022 and it tours to the Museum Villa Stuck in Munich, dates are to be confirmed there, then to Mudam in Luxembourg between the 15th of August and the 5th of October 2023, the Serralves Museum of Contemporary Art in Porto between February and June of 2024 and the Rencontre d'Arles in France, full dates to be confirmed for that presentation. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And do also subscribe to our other podcasts, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the art newspaper podcasts are Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and Henrietta Bantop. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and a big thank you to Dianita Singh. See you next week for A Brush With, Charles Ray. Bye for now. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.